Um, I do have a, uh, a sheet of scripture readings. There's a lot of important scriptures that I have to um, refer to today in the sermon. If you're the kind of person that likes flipping through your Bibles, that's fine. Please do that. Get your Bibles out, though, and get ready. Otherwise, uh, please accept one of these as Kurt comes around and, uh, um, and then use it as I read various scriptures through the sermon. Next Sunday is our spring retreat. And then the Sunday after that is Easter. And the Sunday after Easter, we will begin a series this spring and then picking it up again in the fall on the book of James. And that leaves us with this delicious opportunity this morning, since we've just finished the book of Ruth, to talk about the great engineering disaster. The scripture reading is the top one on the sheet that is being passed out. It's very short. It's from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So, even though I'm a preacher by profession, I'm an engineer at heart. My father was a civil engineer. My brother is a construction engineer. I was an engineering student until I began to focus my studies on a career in ministry. And I really enjoy a TV show, there's actually several of them, called, and they have various names, but they're all similar to each other, called Engineering Disasters, or Engineering Catastrophes, or ones called Deadly Engineering. And you watch these shows, and they're about a certain building, or a certain bridge, or a certain... Um, structure that was put together you know according to a certain engineering design and then it ended in disaster there was a some kind of a collapse lives were often lost and uh, and I really enjoy watching this show I enjoy the uh, seeing what happened and learning the lessons that that uh, came from it um, and I'm sure that many of you um, have experienced your own engineering disasters in ways that would probably never get on TV, but you've either built things or seen things built or you've walked on things that were built and, you know, seen the disaster of poor engineering or some kind of engineering mistake. I remember when we were on a mission trip down to Honduras years ago, we uh, drove out from La Ceiba to this hospital out in the woods, this Christian hospital. And uh, a year before we had visited, um, they had a, uh, a cable walkway over this ravine because 
there was no good way to get from one side of the campus to the other so they built this so the people didn't have to walk way down to the ravine and the way up they built this walkway well uh, about a year before there's a whole bunch of teenagers on the thing and they all were taking pictures and they all said okay let's lean lean on the, the handrail you know and the thing snapped and one of the kids was killed one of the missionary kids was killed and there's a tragedy but this kind of thing happens all over the world and down through history even in in Jesus time you know, he talked about the tower of Siloam collapsing we don't know exactly what happened but these things happen it's they're part of human existence and human experience well in this show you know they show this these disasters and then they show then the investigation they talk about the investigation that goes on as to what went wrong where was the mistake made that, that some error of judgment some oversight some foolish shortcut that was taken that led to this disaster um, after they pose the question of you know what could have gone wrong they they begin to describe the process that they went through to try to figure out what caused because a lot of times it's not obvious sometimes it is you know sometimes there's a there's a a, a big truck that drives in front of the train on the tracks and the cause the train to go off the tracks but other times there's just a catastrophe and they don't know what happened like you know that time in uh, on 95 in the 80s when uh, a piece big piece of 95 in the middle of the night just fell into the water underneath it in a, on a bridge it was just gone in the dark and cars driving off and falling 40 feet down into the water what went wrong so they begin this the investigation they show different possibilities and then they finally uh, isolate what went wrong to bring this calamity about. Um, well, I'd like to use that as sort of a, a paradigm for us to talk about the world that we live in because the fact is one thing that everybody agrees with, agrees on right now, and there's not much, is that something has gone very wrong in this world it's broken and there are many people suffering the ill effects of this calamity and it's not getting better it's getting worse wars conflicts injustice corruption I'm just listing things that pretty much everybody can agree on generational tensions, mental illness, cruelty, climate crisis, crises, drought, forest fires, earthquakes, volcanoes, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, landslides, avalanches, hostilities, racism, breakdown of the family, sexual abuse, human trafficking, massive debt, identity confusion I'm sure if I asked for open raised hands you could come up with five or ten more without any problem the world seems like it's a train wreck happening in slow motion before our very eyes people my age are constantly talking about the amazing way that things have disintegrated 
just in our lifetimes. And one of the ways that you can see that everybody's feeling this way is that is in the movies that are being produced. There are very few utopian movies coming out these days. You know, where someday we're going to work things out and we're going to live in perfect harmony and peace. No, the movies are so dystopian. You know, it's like people trying to survive after atomic bombs have killed everyone else in the world or you know the world has is, is suffered some climate crisis so this, you can't live here anymore and we're traveling to other planets to try to find some place to continue to survive this is the kind of movies that are being made because this is the way people are feeling and it's fitting that we spend some time asking ourselves what went wrong what caused this disaster where did the process break down that got us to this place? This is crucial. We're not going to be able to understand the world we live in or the age we live in unless we know the answer to this question. And we won't be able to understand how to proceed into the future if we don't understand what's wrong with us in the present. There's an answer, all right. The question is, do people really want to know what the answer is? Most don't. People are willing to find out where things went wrong if the finger ends up being pointed at someone else. But when the finger is going to get pointed at me, then that's a different story. People don't want to hear that they are to blame. I know it's not me. It can't be me. Well, as I said, the Bible answers this question of what went wrong. And Psalm 118.22 is a good place to look for it. It tells us the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There's so much that's hidden in this verse that answers our question. First of all, the image that it's using here in this verse is some kind of a construction site where there's a great stone building of some kind being built. And the verse tells us that as the building was being prepared to be built, the builders of the building were presented with a certain stone to be the cornerstone of this new building. Now, you know, those of us who aren't closely involved with the construction industry may not know what a cornerstone is and its important function. But um, when you're building a stone building, you start with one stone. It has to be perfectly cut, perfectly straight, perfectly sound and true, and it's laid perfectly down in the corner, and then everything else is put together based on that, based on that one cornerstone. If the cornerstone is not perfectly square, it throws off the whole rest of the building. 
So it must be true. So theoretically, if a cornerstone is perfect, then the whole building, if it truly is set according to the cornerstone, the whole building will be sound, following off of the soundness of the cornerstone. But if the cornerstone is off, then the whole building is thrown off. And this verse gives us the bottom line of what went wrong. You know, when we isolate the problem, when we drill down and discover where things went wrong, was the problem with the stone? No. Was it cracked? Was it crooked? Was it curved? Was the problem with the way the stone was set? No. Was the problem with, with the, the speed at which the cornerstone was put in place? No. It wasn't anything like that. What happened was that when the builders were presented with this particular stone, for some reason they found it objectionable and wouldn't accept this stone as the cornerstone. They rejected it. They cast it aside. And this, in the investigation of what went wrong, this was the pivotal moment. That's what went wrong. And because of that choice to reject this stone, the whole building is off. The whole structure is skewed and unsound. But the verse goes on to tell us more. But first, I want to tell you a little bit more about these TV shows that I enjoy. I already told you that they described the catastrophe, and then they posed the question about how it could have been caused, and then they described the investigation into where the error was made. But there's one more part after that. The next step after they've isolated what went wrong, the next step was to, is to describe what they did to try to fix the situation after the catastrophe has occurred. And that's what this verse goes on to do as well. The error was the rejection of the correct stone. The stone which was true and perfect and sound and straight. There is only one good and right foundation. And that foundation got rejected. And something else got put in its place. That's the error. And Peter tells us who this stone was in Acts 4.11. When he's speaking to the people who rejected Jesus... And he says to them, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118.22. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So this makes it clear that Jesus is the stone that's in mind here, that he was given by God to the builders, but was summarily rejected by them. And all through history, up until the time of Jesus, there had been this promise of a coming hope, a coming Savior, a coming King, a coming Messiah, who would make things right. But when this promised one finally came, 
instead of accepting him and building their lives upon him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Isaiah 53. But then Psalm 118.22 goes on to tell us what God did about this terrible error. It says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So this verse tells us that God didn't just leave the rejected stone laying on the side of the construction site. He raises the rejected stone and uses it as a cornerstone as it was designed to be used. We know it's God who does this because the next verse says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is God's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. So there's something else that this verse tells us beside the fact that it was the Lord's doing to take this stone and use it as the corner, new cornerstone. It also tells us that the Lord's doing this was viewed as marvelous, not by everyone, not by those who had been the builders who rejected him, but by the Lord's people. You see, Psalm 118, 22 and 23 has bad news and it has good news. The bad news is that the builders rejected the stone which should have been the cornerstone. The good news is that the Lord has done a marvelous thing with this rejected stone. He has used it as the cornerstone of a whole new marvelous building project. He did not just leave the disaster and wash his hands of it. Instead, he took the true but rejected stone and with it he began to create a whole new world. So there are two humanities. There's a humanity of rejection and a humanity of acceptance. There are those whose defining characteristic is their rejection of Jesus as the cornerstone. And there are those whose defining characteristic is the acceptance of Jesus as their cornerstone. And what differentiates them from one another is not primarily who they are, but who they've built their lives on. Now, I want to talk about two other Old Testament passages which now can be brought in to shed light on what we've talked about, and what we've seen already from Psalm 118, 22 and 23. So take your scripture out here and look at the next scripture, the second scripture on here, Isaiah 28, 16. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. So it's obviously talking about the same thing as Psalm 118, how the Lord has taken this cornerstone 
and he's laid it to be the beginning of a new building. But then it says at the end, whoever believes will not be in haste. Now that sounds a little funny. So let's dig into that a little bit and see what this is talking about. Whoever believes will not be in haste. Here haste means like panic, like fretting, like frantic busyness, like the way people are when there's a hurricane just about to hit their houses and their, and their, or, or a tornado. We had a tornado warning this morning. People running down into the basement or, you know, people who are, there's some disaster that's just about to strike in the way that people are in that moment where they're in that panic. That's the, the that's why it says they're not in haste, you know, because those people, you're in haste when you're in that situation. You got to get a lot done in a little bit of time. It's not, not the time for procrastination to kick in. So that's what it means. Whoever believes will not panic. You know, when storms hit, those who have no foundation in life, whose houses are built on sand, are sent into a tizzy. Their hearts shake like the trees of the forest shake before the wind, as Isaiah 7-2 says, because this life is all they have. So when their life is shaken, and they have no confidence that there's anyone watching out for them, they have no confidence that someone is up there ruling over heaven and earth, so they panic. But not those of us whose strong foundation is Jesus Christ. We will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 46 tells us we will not fear. When we face dangers, even our own death, we will not be filled with fear as though it's all about to end. We are anchored to the rock. We shall not be put to shame. Another verse that I'd like to point out, another Old Testament passage, is the next on the list, Isaiah 8, 14, and 15, which says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Now, uh, it will become obvious later that, that Isaiah is talking about the same thing here as the others. These are all connected together. You'll see that in a minute. But this part of the puzzle, this puzzle piece tells us two new things that the stone is a stone of offense that it offends people and it is a rock of stumbling not only do they reject this stone as the cornerstone but they're offended by this stone they're hateful toward this stone and then second of all, this stone is a rock of stumbling. This stone 
even though it's a sanctuary, that's how the verse starts, right? He would become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So, you know, here the same stone becomes a hiding place, a shelter, a refuge for some, but for others it is a stone of stumbling. It is a destructive stone for them. If you don't build your house upon the rock, the rock will end up being your undoing, is what it's saying. Now, this passage here in Isaiah 8 is quoted by Paul in his letter to the Romans, chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, referring to those who rejected Jesus again, and also referring to those who accepted him. It says this, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So here he quotes both of these passages, Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8, and brings them together and refers them to Jesus. And, um, and says that, uh, that those who rejected him stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it was predicted in Isaiah. And then it translates, whoever believes in him, um, whoever believes shall not be in haste. It translates that, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And you can th- th- see how those two concepts are, are pretty close to each other. The concept of being in panic and being put to shame. Now we see this concept vividly, this concept of the destructiveness of the stone vividly in Jesus' parable on the tenants. Now, I know it seems like a strange thing to bring up at this time, but bear with me, you'll see that this is very relevant to this whole story. That Jesus says it's relevant, makes it clear that it's relevant. So Jesus told the story of a tenant. Remember, uh, in this tenant, uh, there's a master who uh, who builds a vineyard and gets it all set up, and he hires workers to run the vineyard, and then he goes away to another country. Um, this parable is in all three of the synoptic gospels: Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then when harvest comes, remember, the master sends a messenger to, to claim the harvest, the, the fruit of the vineyard. But instead of sending it to him, the workers that he left beat up the messengers and even kill some of them. So the master thinks, well, I'll send my son. Certainly they won't do that to my son to demand the fruit that is mine. But the workers refuse again and even kill the master's son. Well, what does this have to do with the, uh, these verses about the stone in the Old Testament? Well, amazingly, after this parable, Jesus tells this parable, and all three of these Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he then quotes this verse from Psalm 118. In all three... 
making it clear that he wants us to connect this parable with this verse about the rejected cornerstone. And it does, it gives us new insight, more insight into the picture of Psalm 119. Um, The workers here, they cast aside the sun, the perfect and true sun, just like the perfect and true stone they they cast aside. But in this parable, the thing that we see that adds to the story is that the master shows up at the construction site after they kill his son and he is angry and he says he it says he put those wretches to a miserable death in Matthew 21:41 and then he establishes a new crew to do the job and then in Matthew and Luke Jesus adds a conclusion. And this is what he says. This is from Matthew 1, 43 to 44. So this passage is uh, here in the notes as well. Matthew 21, 43 to 44. Jesus adds this at the end of the parable. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Now, you know, some people say, well, Jesus, you know, Jesus handled things differently. And the Old Testament is all this harsh, fiery, scary stuff. And Jesus comes along and he's tender and he's humble and he's mild. And, and there's, a lot, there's some truth to that. But here, he actually intensifies what the Old Testament says. He adds to this. It's not just that, you know, it's going to be a a rock of stumbling, but this rock is going to fall on them and crush them. So the ones who reject the stone don't just miss out on having the one true foundation of their lives, but they are broken to pieces by the stone, as Jesus said, and ultimately crushed by it. And I can't you know, preach this sermon without reading to you the passage that brings all of this together into one place in 1 Peter 2, 4 to 8. So let me just read that. I won't even comment on it or I'll try to resist the temptation to. And it's in your notes. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Wow. So where does all this leave us? 
You know, every time you walk into a building, every time you cross a bridge, you are putting your trust in the engineers, in the builders. But sometimes, as we know, that trust is not warranted. Sometimes that trust is even catastrophic. And that is the problem with our world. Our world is not built on a sure foundation. It's built on a foundation of man, man's wisdom, man's ingenuity. And man is broken and man is sinful. And man has proven to be anything but a good foundation upon which to build. So the world doesn't work. And we shouldn't expect it to work. It's a mess for a reason. The one foundation that would have worked, the one sure foundation was rejected. And that rejected, and that rejection wreaked havoc. The world's mess, until the Lord comes again, will never be fixed. And then when he comes again, he won't even fix it. He will replace it. So the project we should invest in is not the project that rejected the cornerstone but the one that has Jesus as the cornerstone. And that building is still under construction. So it's messy. We know, though, who the builder is. And there's no better. So we trust him to not only finish the project, but to build a magnificent structure. We're given a, pic a little glimpse, a picture of this, the finished product to expect, you know, sometimes when they have a, a project that they're doing in an engineering office, they'll build a little model of what it looks like. Well, we're given a little model of what it's going to look like in the end in Revelation chapter 21 in John's vision. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea and is no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, Coming down from the throne, I'm sorry, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The radiance of the holy city was like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and all the gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the, third carne the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. 
And I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So we're given here a glorious picture, a beautiful picture, a spectacular picture. And the issue isn't trying to figure out what each thing represents. It's just to enjoy the beauty of the sight that God is here. We have a spectacular future, those of us who are a part of this structure. And we're told that we are in the passage we just read from 1 Peter 3, 2, which says, You yourselves are living stones being built up as a spiritual house. Right now, we are dirty and dusty coal that's under a lot of pressure. But on that day, we will be diamonds. We are still works of progress, so much so that it seems like we've got so far to go that we'll never get there. And I can identify, I feel that way often. I feel like the, the uh, blemishes of my life are far greater than the things that I can look at and, and smile about. I am far from the place that that we will all be on that day. And the older I get, the more I am aware of those corruptions. I long to shine beautifully for Jesus, but I feel like I fail more than I succeed. But one day, we will all be presented to Jesus without spot or wrinkle sparkling like every kind of jewel, a bride so beautifully adorned that we will be fitting as the bridegroom's bride. Some people can't wait to get rid of their pain. Some people can't wait to get rid of their sadness. Some people can't wait to get rid of their physical brokenness and be made whole. For me, the thing I most long to get rid of is my sin. Now I wish I could see the light at the end of the tunnel and feel like enough progress has been made that I can see that I'm getting there. But honestly, I can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But my anticipation is not based on how much progress I've made. It's based on the promises of God that in the end, Jesus will have sanctified me and cleanse me so that he might present me to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that I might be holy and without blemish. Ephesians 5. For now, the wisest thing in the world that we can do is to build our lives on the rejected cornerstone. And the most foolish thing that anyone can do is to refuse him and to reject him. Let us pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we hear voices crying, calling out among the mockers to reject you. And it grieves our hearts, oh Lord. 
And it's not just in our past, but even in our present, dear Lord, there's still a voice that opposes you, that wants to reject you. We thank you that our salvation is founded in the rejected cornerstone. We thank you, dear Lord, that you have forgiven. And we long that our lives would be built upon you. And we pray for your help, O Lord, and for your guidance. And we thank you now that you have called us to come to your table and receive your welcome and receive your nourishment and receive your forgiveness and to receive your love. Help us now to come, O Lord. May every heart prepare him room. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.